The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Jennifer vanished sometime in the overnight hours. Right now, there is no trace. Investigators say evidence leads them to believe that she's dead. Stick my nose back in the trail. That's all I can do. This is already gone. Already gone. Already gone. People's lives can look so normal on the surface, almost perfect. We may look at someone else's situation and wish that we could be like them. To an outsider, Eliza Sherman had the perfect life. A dedicated mother of four children, she had been married to her husband, Sanford, for 28 years. She had a successful career as an in vitro fertilization nurse at the Cleveland Clinic. To outsiders, it seemed that all was right in the world. But Eliza's life was also very complicated. On the day she was murdered, she was two days away from going to trial for divorce proceedings against her husband of 28 years. The divorce had been messy. Her attorney was not prepared and had asked Eliza to meet him at his downtown office so that he was sure he was ready for the upcoming proceedings. When Eliza got to the office building at 55 Erie View Plaza, the door was locked. She texted her lawyer, Gregory Moore, and told him that she was waiting at the door. It was about 5.30 and it was cold out. Eliza texted Moore again to tell him that she was going to wait for him in her car. She was cold and the box of documents she carried was heavy. Moore told her to wait because he would be right down to open the door for her. It was then that someone approached Eliza with a knife. They stabbed her 11 times and ran away. The sun was still up. It was downtown Cleveland, yet no one saw the person who attacked Eliza Sherman as she stood waiting for her lawyer to open the door. Her family and friends are still seeking justice almost 10 years later. Eliza was born Eliza Zinn. Her parents were Holocaust survivors from Poland. She had three brothers, Steve, Harry, and Edward. She was raised in the Jewish faith and celebrated that faith until her death. Her parents, having survived the horrors of the Holocaust, shared their faith with their children. They also shared their resilience and survival skills. Her parents met and fell in love in a displaced persons camp. They moved to Cleveland in the 50s and devoted their lives to giving each of their children better lives than they had. After Eliza graduated high school, she was accepted into the Case Western Reserve University's nursing program, but she couldn't afford to attend Case Western, so she went to the Huron Road Nursing School instead. Eliza's interest in becoming a nurse didn't surprise anyone. She was always a natural caretaker. Her life was dedicated to taking care of her family and her friends. While in college, she would go to Hillel events with other Jewish students on the Case Western campus. 
This is where she met her husband, Sanford, in 1980. Sanford was six feet tall, heavy set, with brown hair and brown eyes. His parents were also Holocaust survivors from Poland. This gave the couple a connection to one another that they may not have otherwise had. They fell in love and were married on Sunday, November 28, 1982. Sanford would become a successful ophthalmologist, and Eliza would be a nurse. In 1990, Eliza quit nursing to be a stay-at-home mom. After all, she had three children to raise, Josh, Jason, and Jennifer. Their fourth child, Jeremy, would be born in 1995. The family moved to a bigger house on the other end of the same street, and Eliza wanted to make everyone feel welcome for gatherings at their home. She loved having company. She kept the cupboards full of chocolate for the children, and she would memorize everyone's favorite dishes for the Sabbath. Her lifelong friend, Jan Lash, and her husband would often be guests for Hanukkah. Eliza's family and her faith were the entire nucleus of her existence. But there were problems in her marriage from the start. Her brother, Edward, would later recall, He could be a good and gracious guy, but he had two sides to him. For years, the family knew there were problems in the marriage. Sanford could be generous, but his generosity was often a thinly-veiled brag on how much money he made. He would invest thousands of dollars in stocks and then tell everyone about it later. He could also be very mean with his family, sometimes in front of others. Family and friends speculated about whether his emotional and verbal abuse could turn physical. Everyone knew there were problems in the marriage, but Eliza wouldn't talk about it. Edward would later say, Maybe she didn't want to share it. Maybe she was embarrassed about it. Maybe it just wasn't her style. The children remembered the fights between Eliza and Sanford. They would call the police when things got out of hand, and things got out of hand quite often. I have memories from when I was three years old, sitting on the carpet in the family room, and covering my ears when they were fighting. The police were at our house numerous times throughout our childhood because me or one of my siblings just called the cops when they were fighting. Her son Jason told Cleveland Magazine in 2017. By 2004, the situation escalated. Sanford had unexpectedly and abruptly retired from his practice. You see, his office assistant had quit after 18 years at the office and rather than hire someone new, he just closed the doors. Eliza took a job as an in vitro fertilization nurse at the Cleveland Clinic. This was a job that she loved because she could give future mothers a chance to know the joys of family, the joys that she experienced with her own children. Meanwhile, Sanford was spending weeks at a time between their summer home in Florida and New York with a woman he was having an affair with and this affair lasted from 2006 to 2010. On December 12, 2004, a fight over a Hanukkah game escalated into a 911 call. It began with Sanford and Eliza arguing over the prizes. Then Jennifer and Josh stepped in with Jennifer cussing at Josh and Sanford. Eventually, Josh threw a chair across the room. The family was starting to divide with Jennifer taking Eliza's side and Josh leaning toward his father. Meanwhile, Jeremy and Jason 
they kept their heads down and tried to stay out of the fray. By 2011, Eliza had had enough. She filed for divorce. Clear lines in the sand were being drawn. Jennifer encouraged her mother to leave her father. She wanted her mother to finally be happy. She felt that Eliza deserved to be valued and appreciated. In January of 2011, Jeremy was struggling with the divorce, and it was showing in his schoolwork. On January 3rd, Eliza wrote an email to Rabbi Blau, who was principal of the children's school. Jeremy was a sophomore, and Eliza asked that the principal allow Jeremy a pass-fail grade in one of his classes so that his performance, or lack thereof, would not affect his GPA. I have been battling and struggling with a very controlling, hurtful spouse for many years. It looks like divorce is imminent. It took me a long time to reach this point. I tried to avoid it at all cost, but seeing how my oldest son turned into a reincarnate of his father, I realized I have to free Jeremy from this environment. Nobody knows about the steps I need to take except my best friend, who is my support. Eliza filed for divorce on June 20, 2011. She hired attorney Joe Stafford of the Stafford & Stafford Law Firm on the advice of a longtime friend who had him preside over his own divorce. The law firm had a reputation for handling high-profile divorce cases, and Eliza thought this would give her an edge. The day after receiving the divorce papers from Eliza, Sanford filed a complaint against her. Despite his complaint, Sanford was still pushing Eliza to save the marriage and go to counseling with him. Eliza wasn't having any of it. She told her lawyer that this was a ploy to get her back, but nothing in the relationship would change. Sanford would remain controlling and abusive. Neither Sanford nor Eliza were willing to leave the house, for fear that action would be seen in court as abandonment so Eliza moved into a bedroom downstairs. And listeners, we'll be right back. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. When I'm feeling in control of my life, I can do more, achieve more, and feel better. But there are situations that you can't control, and when they wear you down, therapy can help. If you're thinking of trying therapy, consider BetterHelp. BetterHelp was there for me during one of the most challenging times of my life. Not only did my BetterHelp counselors support me, they gave me tools to help me succeed. BetterHelp is convenient, affordable, and best of all, it's entirely online. If you want to live a more empowered life, therapy can get you there. Visit BetterHelp.com slash gone today and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash gone. Feel better today with better help. Even with Eliza living in a downstairs bedroom, the situation in the home was tense and sometimes violent. Police were called to the home six times that year. Josh had pretty much disowned his mother and aligned with Sanford. The house became a war zone. By the end of 2011, Sanford was asking friends to convince Eliza to settle the divorce. He requested that the court put a restraining order on all joint bank accounts attached to Eliza's name. 
but this included accounts she held with her mother, Doris, and with Jason and Jennifer. This would have greatly affected her financial situation, as well as the financial situation of Jason and Jennifer. Eliza saw this as Sanford exerting control over her once again. Eliza also sent emails to herself about her situation. In one from January of 2012, she wrote, I'm really afraid he is going to have me killed. Several of Eliza's friends offered to let her stay in their homes until things were settled, but Eliza refused. Instead, she had a deadbolt installed on her bedroom door so that she could lock it at night. And while events were circling the drain up until this point, in March of 2012, they finally started to get sucked down. Joe Stafford's law license was suspended for a year after the Ohio Supreme Court found that he violated six of the state's rules of professional conduct for judges and attorneys. That's when Eliza's case was handed over to his senior associate, Gregory Moore. Eliza didn't like Moore. She complained to friends and family that he was late to meetings and wouldn't respond to texts or emails. Within the first six months of taking on Eliza's case, he filed several continuances because he wasn't prepared to appear in court. This pushed her freedom from Sanford even further back. Eliza tried to find another lawyer to take on the case, but it was too far along and she was running out of money. No one would take the case and she was trapped. Now, Attorney Moore was feeling the pressure of the extra caseload that Stafford's absence put on him, but rather than try to find help or refer cases to others, he chose a different path. At least three times, he called in bomb threats to the Geauga County Court of Common Pleas, the Lake County Courthouse, and the Cuyahoga County Domestic Relations Court. He would phone in a threat if he wasn't prepared for a case that was scheduled for appearance. In 2013, Judge Rosemary Gold ordered no more continuances granted for Eliza's case, and she set a hearing date of March 26th. Attorney Moore texted Eliza on Sunday, March 24th. He wanted to see her in his office that afternoon. He told her to bring any documentation that she had so they could work on her case and prepare for the court proceedings that were to take place on Tuesday. Eliza agreed and gathered everything she had. Before leaving the house for the evening, Eliza told her son, Jeremy, that she was going to his grandmother Doris's house to get some medicine and run errands. Doris lived in Florida, but she kept a home in Cleveland for when she would come home to visit. In mid-March, Doris was still staying in Florida. Eliza also told Jeremy that she would bring home pizza for dinner, and she would be back in a couple of hours. Eliza texted Jennifer around 2.55 that afternoon to tell her she was meeting with Moore, but Jennifer was in the middle of a long study session for a pharmacology exam and had silenced her phone. It would be hours before Jennifer received this message. Eliza also called her friend from childhood, Jan Lash, to tell her that she was meeting Moore at his office about 5 o'clock. Jan offered to accompany her to the meeting, but Eliza declined. She told Jan she could handle it on her own. Eliza arrived at Moore's office at 55 Erie View Plaza around 5.30 p.m. She carried the box of documents that he had requested. 
When she got to the door of the building, it was locked. Frustrated, she texted Moore and let him know she was downstairs and that she was waiting. He texted back he would be down shortly and open the door for her. Eliza waited. A few minutes later, she texted him again. She told him it was cold outside, so she was going to wait in her car. Again, Moore texted her and told her that he would be down in a few minutes. That's when someone stepped up behind her and stabbed her 11 times. Eight times in the back and twice in the neck, once in the arm. A man working on the fourth floor of the building next door heard her screams. He rushed downstairs and found Eliza struggling to stand. She was covered in blood. It was even running out of her mouth. This man immediately called 911. He tried to get Eliza to lie down, but she fought him. Eventually, she didn't have the strength to stand anymore and laid down on the sidewalk. The man stayed with her and begged her not to die. Eliza tried to tell him something, but he couldn't understand what she was saying. She was coughing up blood, so he tried to roll her over on her stomach so she wouldn't swallow it. He was still on the phone with the police, and in a desperate voice he said, There's blood everywhere. I've never seen so much blood. About a minute later, sirens could be heard. They were coming to the rescue. I hear them. I hear them. Ladies, stay with me, all right? They're coming. The ambulance arrived and took Eliza to Metro Health Medical Center. She was pronounced dead at 6.14 p.m. Back at home, Jeremy was getting hungry. He had tried several times to contact his mom, but she wasn't answering her phone. By 7.45, he was worrying. Eliza should have been home by then. He texted Jennifer, Are you with mom, or do you know where she is? And Jennifer immediately knew that something was wrong. She tried calling Eliza several times, but there was no answer. Her concern shifted to panic. Eliza always answered the phone for her children. Jennifer called Gregory Moore's office, but there was no answer there either. After calling Jeremy back to find out that Eliza had told him that she was going out to run errands and go by Doris's house, then finding the text saying that she was going to Moore's office, Jennifer decided to search for Eliza on her own. Jennifer ran through the possibilities in her mind as she tried to figure out where to start the search. Had Eliza gone to Doris's place? She knew that Eliza was consistently trying to shield Jeremy from divorce proceedings, so she may have told him that she was going to Doris's, but was really going to meet with Moore. Could she have been in a car accident? Could she have lost her phone? After starting her search, Jennifer's phone began to ring. Doris had been trying to contact Eliza for hours. So had Eliza's brother, Harry. Neither one of them had heard from Eliza all day. That's when Jennifer knew this was bad. This was really bad. Jeremy called her again. This time, he was calling to tell her that Cleveland police were on their way to the house. They wanted to talk with the family. Jennifer made a U-turn and headed toward the family home. She called her boyfriend and asked him to meet her there. Jennifer had spent the previous five years distancing herself from her father, so when she got to the house, she went in, grabbed Jeremy, and both of them went out to her car to wait for police. Her boyfriend Kevin showed up a few minutes later, 
and all three waited in Jennifer's car. When police arrived, Jennifer met them outside of the home. She grabbed the first officer by the lapels of his coat and pulled him toward her. Tears were streaming down her face as she yelled, What happened to my mother? Two days later, a grainy video was released of the person who is presumed to be Eliza's attacker. The video shows a person in bulky winter clothing with a dark hooded coat running away from the scene. There are two views to the video, one as the attacker runs toward the camera and the other as they run away from a second camera mounted on the wall of a parking garage. Because the video is so distorted, it's hard to tell the person's gender or race. The camera angle also misrepresents their height and the clothing skews their build. Their face and hands are covered. And I'm going to post a link to the video in the show notes so you can see this person for yourself. The way the clothing obscures her killer's build appears to be intentional. However, they weren't wearing an elaborate costume. It looks like they put together a quick disguise from whatever clothes they found in their closet. Eliza's purse and jewelry were found with her, so robbery was ruled out as the motive. It's unknown whether Eliza knew her attacker. Police searched dumpsters, streets, and rooftops in the area for the murder weapon. They also searched the Sherman home. Despite their best efforts, the murder weapon was never recovered. Eliza's funeral was held March 28, 2013. Over 600 people crowded into the Memorial Chapel in Cleveland Heights to celebrate her life and mourn her death. Josh and his wife, Laura, Jennifer and her boyfriend, Kevin, Jason, Jeremy, Eliza's best friend, Jan Lash, and her three brothers, Steve, Harry, and Edward, sat in the family visitation room close to her casket. Sanford Sherman stood in the very back of the room among the crowd. He had been part of her life for 31 years, but he was not allowed to be part of her death. After the service, each family member stepped up to give their own eulogy at the pulpit, but not before stopping to touch or kiss the casket, a final show of love before Eliza would be gone forever. Jennifer's eulogy for her mother was the most poignant. Her words reflected the heart of her mother. Speaking to Eliza, she said, My special gift in life is having you as my mother. The bond between us is enormous. It's something I can always count on when it feels as if everything else is falling apart. I'm so glad that God, in his infinite wisdom, allowed me to belong to you, to be your child and your best friend. More than anything, I'm so thankful to be given that honor to love you and call you my mother. I love you, Mom. In the days and weeks following the murder, it was Jennifer who took on the fight to find justice for Eliza. She put her entire life on hold and raised money for rewards, billboards, and vigils to keep her mother's name in the forefront and keep the investigation going. But this work was wearing her down. She was tired, eating poorly, and depressed. At one of the first vigils, she met Yvonne Pointer and Laura Cowan. These two women were advocates against domestic violence. Jennifer also took up that torch in Eliza's name, and suddenly, Eliza's senseless murder seemed to have more meaning. The vigils had direction, and Jennifer had a cause. 
Both Eliza's attorney, Gregory Moore, and Sanford Sherman were considered suspects in the beginning. Employees from other buildings were questioned. The police interviewed a lot of people, but no one had any information. By 2015, every lead was exhausted, and Cleveland police turned the investigation over to the Cuyahoga County prosecutor so they could take another look. There was no movement on Eliza's case for a year. Then, in January 2016, Eliza's attorney, Gregory Moore, was indicted on one count of tampering with evidence, one count of obstructing official business, one count of falsification, one count of telecommunications fraud, and two counts of forgery. These charges were all in connection with Eliza's murder. During the investigation, it was found that Moore had sent the text to Eliza, telling her to be at his office. In interviews, he also told police that he was at his office waiting for Eliza, but when police checked his cell phone data, it was found that he was never at the office. Electronic keycard data from the entrances to the building and witness statements corroborated this. This was a good first step toward solving Eliza's murder, but no further evidence could be found that Moore had anything to do with her death. Moore was also indicted on unrelated charges for inducing a panic after calling in bomb threats to courthouses. Moore eventually had his law license revoked and spent six months in jail on those charges. Jennifer never did accept that her father wasn't somehow culpable in her mother's death. She filed a civil suit against him in 2011, two months after her mother's murder, accusing him of opening a bank account in Eliza's name, depositing over $2 million into the account, then forging her name on a power of attorney so he could take the money out. That lawsuit was settled in December of 2016. Sanford agreed to pay $110,000 to the estate with the stipulation that Jennifer would forever release and discharge him from any claims they might make in the future. Jennifer agreed to this with one exception. If, in the future, he is convicted of any criminal offense related to her mother's murder, she reserved the right to renew the suit and make further claims against him. Every year on the anniversary of Eliza's death, Friends and family gather at the place she was murdered to mourn her and raise awareness for her case and for all those who have suffered domestic abuse. Each year, four candles are lit behind pictures of Eliza, each picture showing her at various milestones in her life. Jennifer holds out hope that Eliza's murder will be solved. She hopes that each year will be the last year that they gather at that site to remember the event that tore her and her siblings' lives apart. This March marks the 10th anniversary of Eliza's murder. To honor her legacy, her daughter Jennifer is hosting an event to raise money in Eliza's name. Funds from this event will go toward Cleveland Clinic patients and caregivers who have experienced violence. Funds will also be used to implement prevention and awareness programs. The event will be held March 23rd, and I will put a link to the event in our show notes. I also made a donation to the fundraiser using anticipated proceeds from this episode. I'm Nina Instead, the producer and voice behind the Already Gone podcast. As always, I appreciate you listening, and please be safe. <laughs>